This is R.A. Mihailov, Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, and you're listening to Midnight at the Monster Museum. guys this is tom devlin and welcome back to midnight at the monster museum the scariest podcast on the interwebs so today for my guest we have not just a guy who has been involved with horror flicks and horror movies but he's also a horror character such as uh such as one of the creepiest weirdest independent wrestlers you've ever met he calls himself the warlord of weird he is the one and the only sin bodhi sin bodhi's career has spanned from WWE, TNA, right? Uh, what what other, what else have you, uh, what federations have you been a part of? I was a mermaid. I was a Boy Scout. Uh, <laughs> I was in the Martian fleet for a little while, dishonorably discharged. Uh, no, I wrestled all over um, OVW, uh, NWA, TNA back in the day. Um, I was FCW, uh, WWE SmackDown, and just a million, bajillion different uh independent shows just across the planet canada u.s puerto rico mexico um all over europe uk so for the those of you the horror fans out there that are like oh no they're talking about wrestling again well here's the thing uh i'll never forget back in the late 80s early 90s there was this big thing with fangoria magazine where they were going to integrate wrestling into the the magazine and there was one camp that was all for it and one camp completely against it. And I'll tell you right now, I was completely against it. I was like, wrestling's not horror. That's not characters. We can't do that. Blah, 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 blah. I was so pro horror only in Fangoria. As I got older and I found this absolute love and passion for wrestling and the characters and the storytelling and everything that's within it, I became a huge wrestling fan alongside a horror fan. Now I would wonder what it would have been like had they integrated that element in, especially in the in the days of the Attitude Era when we had Mankind, who was basically a Leatherface-type character. We had Gangrel. We had, you know, so many with The Undertaker and, and all of that. Uh, and the crazy characters going back in the past, even Sting and Ultimate Warrior, these guys were in abundance. They, there was nutty... Uh, makeup covered effects wielding giant snakes and you know wrestling absolutely goes with horror movies like peanut butter and jelly and uh as far as when i met sin here our guest i was working on a horror film it was uh not a particularly great one it's called unlucky charms and it was academy actually i have to take it back before unlucky charms because we met on killjoy 4 Killjoy yes. goes to hell. Yep, Killjoy goes to hell. Yep. And uh, Killjoy goes to hell. Sin and about twenty other wrestlers came as uh, wrestling extras slash fight choreography. We did that fight scene in the boiler room where they uh, shot Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, say. yeah. It was at uh, Lacey, not Lacey <clears throat> Street. It was um, Linda Vista Hospital. 
uh, a crazy old rundown decrepit hospital. They shot Nightmare on Elm Street there in the boiler room, and we also shot uh, Killjoy Goes to Hell. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you had a whole slew of wrestlers. I think we met you through Al Burke, yes. if I'm not mistaken. Mr. Outrageous. Yeah, Mr. Outrageous. I've done about 100 movies with Al, and that's part of where my love for wrestling has spawned is hearing Al's road stories all these times. He's been... Uh, choreographing stunts and acting in films I've, I've put him in makeup a lot of times and he's such and, a good dude and i've heard his stories and and just man you fall in love with that history sure. the history of it Absolutely. and uh, of course he introduced me to you I, I met you on killjoy 4 we didn't work super closely i was busy painting demon clowns and but demons. i want to say that our our interaction was like i mean we were, we were pretty cool yeah early on like yeah, just, yeah yeah if i look back to think when i met you or just how did i establish support i just kind of felt like we kind of knew each other Way longer than like we met each other five minutes later. We were right lifelong buddies. Right, and it kind of worked that way. You were like, "Hey, man, I love horror stuff, and I love this weird stuff, and I kind of want to make these movies with these guys." And you jumped onto the crew from the, being being a fighter on that movie, a, a, a fight choreography type guy. Mm-hmm. You ended up with the art department at one point, and you ended up helping Howard with camera. Well, I was just fascinated, and I mean, wrestling and the movies. I, like you were talking about, you know, when you were kind of doing the introduction, like I think wrestling and horror movies, just movies in general, comic books, music, poetry, all of it really just revolves around the same thing, the story of good and evil. Yeah. And all that, you know. Star Wars. Parlays. Yeah, exactly. I always joke with the wrestling students, my favorite wrestling match of all time, Star Wars. Yeah. Luke and Darth. Yeah. You know, you got a big monster bad guy who's, you know, starts out the show at the top of the card. You got the underneath good guy, you know, fighting his way just through the thick of everything just to get to the daunting bad guy. I mean, that's if... if, if and at the end of the match, Darth Vader kind of turns heel. I mean, the, turns face. That's right. You know, that's right. And like the, the weird, the, the silly juxtaposition is too, like, if you really think who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, the sort of the catch of that is they're both kind of good guys because if you are popular, you are a good guy. Hence, yeah. Stone Cold, he's breaking rules left and right, but people loved him, so he was a good guy. Yeah. Roddy Piper broke the rules, but they loved him, so he was a good guy. The bad guy in this situation is the Emperor. So Luke is the white meat, you know, fish-shaking, blue-eyed baby face, as the old school vernacular goes. Yeah, and yeah. Darth is sort of the Stone Cold of the universe, and yeah. then the Emperor was the guy that you put the heat on. That was like, oh, that's the son of a gun that's doing all the, the yeah. shenanigans and stuff. But Yeah, but good and evil is the story that we're telling, whether it's in a ring or in a horror movie, or wherever, poetry, music, whatever. Right. So I, uh, we worked together a little bit in the full moon world. And then at one point, I had actually relocated to Florida. And I, want, I had a friend whose daughter had uh, scoliosis. And we were trying to raise some money for a special surgery. And I called you and I was like, I want to do a wrestling match. And you were like, I'm there, brother. And I was like, okay, but... I don't know how to do a wrestling match. You know, I, there's some local guys here. There's this. You're like, oh, I've got it. I'll, I'll bring. We, you brought Stevie Richards. You brought uh, you brought Jake the Snake Roberts. You brought all kinds of, like, real deal wrestlers to this little podunk town in Florida. Kind of on your own dime. Just jump. jump. I think I gave you a plane ticket, maybe. And you you came out. And, because uh, you were trying to do something cool for somebody who was in need. It and was super, super awesome. And because of that, to return that favor, you had put on a wrestling show in Vegas called Freak Show Wrestling. Mm-hmm. And that was your federation at the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I came out to do demon clowns and vampire you makeup. sure did. And the craziest thing for me about that night, everything in my life changed that night. Because I sat there on Blue Diamond uh, and 
and rainbow right there. Yeah. I mean, right out there at Helltown. I sat there and I looked at this water tower and I called my wife and I was like, hey, maybe we should move to Vegas. And she said, why would we ever do that? And I said, well, there's wrestling and haunted houses here. And that's all my world is. You there's, know? Fr- there's free money in all the slot machines. <laughs> and uh, and she's like, well, I don't know. Six months later, I got this random call and I ended up uh, coming out to Vegas. But that night at Freak Show Wrestling, my entire circle of friends that I have now were there. And I didn't know them. One of my one of my You're 13, welcome. One of my 13 effects guys, uh, 13, 13 effects guys, Chris Arredondo, was there with his buddy Zach was the big guy with the little arms yep. that wrestled. Yep. Uh, and then <laughs> remember that guy? Yes, I did. <laughs> yes. And, and uh, yes. and then so Chris was there to see that. Uh, one of my best greatest friends ever, Corey Kalman and Seth. They were Seth's beard. Uh, the, the, little, the little arms was an amazing Jonathan gag. So <laughs> so thanks, Jonathan, if you're listening. <laughs> and the uh, and, and Corey and Seth are part of a team called Wood Rocket that I have made tons of work with. And uh, the, I saw them there and was like, "What are you guys doing here?" And they're like, "We moved to Vegas." And I was like, "This is crazy." I saw. I met very briefly met a guy named Drew Marvick who has been very prominent in my career since I moved to Vegas. He's a huge part of the horror industry here. He brought a guy named Corey Taylor from a band called Slipknot there that night. And they saw your band. Right. I mean, they saw your show. Right. And then uh, he spread the word of Freak Show Wrestling. Yep. And I ended up doing... Thanks, Corey. A, I ended up doing a, a Slipknot video about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And I was like, this is the one thing I have to talk to Corey Taylor about, Freak Show Wrestling. So Freak Show Wrestling was a total freak show, too. Sure. It was so cool. I remember how chaotic and crazy that night was. I remember Jake had to go to the hospital, but you got Rikishi, uh, Rikishi to yep. come fill in at the last minute. Like, yep. all of a sudden, we have a superstar that's just like, I'll be there. Yep. It was to see that. It wasn't just you coming to help me in Florida that showed how passionate you wrestlers are about helping each other. I saw it happen to you that night. Sure. Like the the favor was repa- what's it? Your sure. receipt. You got a receipt. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but uh, and and I became so enthralled. All I wanted to do was learn how to wrestle. And I end up signing up. I, I remember I moved to Vegas and I called you and I was like, the day I moved to Vegas, you moved to L.A. Right. Like we swapped. Right. And I was like, God damn it! I was gonna I was gonna learn how to wrestle. But then you ended up coming back about a year later. Mm-hmm. And I I remember you posted about opening your own school. And I signed up as fast as I could because snake pit. It, the Snake Pit Pro Wrestling Academy and yep. that it was you, D'Lo Brown and Jake the Snake. Yep. And it was my 34th birthday, I think, 34, 35. I don't remember how old I had turned, uh, but I was so excited to join. And uh, man, I got my ass handed to me because I don't care what anybody says about the whole like, oh, wrestling is fake wrestling. Oh, that that mat's not hard. They're wrong. It it's, bounces, but as hard as a effing rock. It's fixed, not fake. It's fixed, not fake. And one of the things that I, it's always stuck in my mind about you coaching, your career has paralleled so closely to my effects career. Where I started, my first job was on X-Files. I, I, uh, I quickly jumped to movies like Scorpion King was my first film, Terminator 3, Daredevil, Red Dragon, the biggest Hollywood stuff ever, all of X-Files season nine. And then I, I left that shop and went to a smaller shop and, and worked at uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. And then from there, I started my own company. I'm working on independent, low-budget movies. And I stayed in that for about 10, 10, 12 years. And then I start teaching. 
and the teaching supplemented the low budget movies. Right. And then I continue because I have passion in the low budget movies where I have all this creative control, but I can teach to make money and still work. And that's where the Monster Museum came from inevitably was to which continue. Which we are sitting in, which is awesome. Which continues to educate, but it also makes a, a paycheck, sure. which also allows me to do full moon movies. Sure. But your career, you start on the in the big times, like right up. I mean, in my opinion, I don't know, but it looks like you jumped straight to WWE. Well, so I was about seven years in when okay. I got hired for WWE, uh, but I did get to do my time at TNA, what is now Impact. I did that relatively early in my career when I was still like just barely, I want to say maybe, maybe barely three years in, which makes you a complete greenhorn. Right. Like, you know, until about five years, you're pretty much Albert told me it takes 10 years to be an actual professional? Well, you know, you can define time in, in different ways for different eras. Like back in the day when the guys were working literally every day, twice on Sundays, you know, whatever. Like, uh, and you, you got married to guys. What would happen is like, you know, this good guy and this bad guy would be on the road They'd against just go each town other to for town. a year. So they could call off the fly per se because they knew each other in and out. So that was sort of a way to do it. A lot of modern guys don't do it like that because they don't get the chance to sort of get married with guys and it's always new uh, opponents. And that's great, new fun adventures. But at the same time, like you have, you know, a learning curve on this stuff. So th there is some guys that are better at two years than there are guys at, at 10 years. And maybe it's because they got more time in or, and just with natural gifted this and that and their opponents and happenstance and luck of the draw and right place, right time and all this stuff. But, you know, back in the day, Paul Orndorff would say, you're a greenhorn until you break a thousand matches. And then Al Burke would, you know, he'd say yeah, like it takes ten years, this or that. Um, he he says that when he told me he was saying it's ten years to get the reflex of knowing what's going on in the ring, which to me sounds realistic because even though I did three months, which is not that long, I never knew what was going on in the ring. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I was so straight, lost and confused every single I, night. I can tell you, you know, not to be nice, but literally sure. to call a spade a spade, like as far as you. In the wrestling ring, uh, I would take a guy like you any day over some really athletic, really talented dude that didn't have any heart or that was like a prima donna. Like between me and Jake and D'Lo and Kenny King and Kiki Taro and Disco Inferno, all the guys that coach at our yeah. school, you know, we could teach you damn near every trick in the book. We can't treat, teach you heart. Right. So you always brought that to the table. I had the heart. So, so whether you were, whether you had three left feet and an extra <laughs> left foot stuck in your in your pocket, you know, it doesn't make a difference. You were, uh, you know, super passionate. You didn't quit. You know, I think you're more concerned about getting other guys, uh, uh, you know, frustrated than I was. Uh, I was. Yourself. I was. I was terrified that I was ruining somebody else's time who might actually be pursuing a career where I know that I'm a little late in the game to pursue said career. No, uh, I never say never and never say die. And I think like for, you know, for some bigger athlete to look at you and roll his eyes speaks to what they do not bring to the table. Right. You know, and I think like, you know, this big, awesome, huge athlete. Even can if do they're this. an OVW champion. <laughs> well, well, you know, like, I mean, any, anybody can dance well with a, with a sure. talented dance partner, but to take somebody for all of their strengths and weaknesses and idiosyncrasies and to tell a good story of good and evil with that person, that takes care. Well, and it spoke volumes. I, I'll tell you what, what opened my eyes to behind the curtain, basically, is the fact that if I was in the ring with you or Beast, I didn't, 
I didn't look terrible on the outside because you guys could could put me where I had to be, you know. And it makes me, I, I used to be an avid hater on Brock Lesnar. I hated Brock Lesnar. But I watch his matches now and I see him protecting their heads. Sure. I see him putting them. He's very where, good. He's amazing. And, and honestly, I never, I bought the character so much. Sure. I just thought he was a douche. And now <laughs> I watch him with Dean Ambrose or somebody who else is pretty good. But Brock's not reckless. He protects their neck, sure, and he sure. and he looks massive and strong while he's doing it. And he protects that illusion again. How scary would Darth Vader be if once the camera cuts? So say, you know, again, the weird difference between wrestling and you know actors and what have you is that you're kind of that character twenty four seven to some degree. I mean, you're more so with the volume cranked when the cameras are on, right? But you're still Brock Lesnar when the cameras are off. Right. So now just imagine that, again, that's Darth Vader. We'll take, you know, put him into the situation. So you see him and he's all scary. He's got that breathing and he's got that stoic, you know, stance and he's standing there all kind of militant and this and that, whatever. Imagine as soon as the camera's cut and he's joking around saying, hey, hey, Luke, let me tell you about these two, <laughs> two nuns and a rabbi walking to a bar. Like, you know, you're going to go, oh, darling, you shouldn't be cracking jokes. Oh, you just burst my bubble, man. I'm expecting to be, you know, villainous. Well, that's very very similar to Kane Hodder, who plays Jason when, well, used to play Jason. When he is off camera, right. he doesn't go near those cast members. Right, right. And he will not, he won't break character sure. in front of the kids because he doesn't want those kids to get too comfortable with him. Totally. He wants them to be in afraid of them on camera sure. but Kane's a teddy bear Boogie, Boogeyman's like that Gangrel's like that oh, yeah. Undertaker's like that uh, for me I like to I definitely I get what I look like so you know when I do go to the merch table as a good guy or a bad guy still looking the same way which me in good guy mode or bad guy mode isn't a far cry difference right I just might you know repurpose a, something over here and put it over there do a little more of this and focus the, the attention on the audience or on the bad guy or this or that depending on the situation but Knowing what I look like, I I want to keep people on their toes, but I want them to have fun. Obviously, that's why I'm there. Right. I would kind of joke and say that, you know, when I'm in a merch table, um, now in a perfect world, if, if, you know, we weren't selling merchandise and just trying to, like, sell extra T-shirts and pig's masks and whatever else to, you know, sort of supplement the, the wrestling addiction. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe I wouldn't be out there just for the illusion, but since it's a good monetary idea to be out there. I literally think about the kids coming up to my table like uh, penguins going for a swim. They like they think it's dangerous to go in the water, so they throw one penguin in, and if he, if he comes out, they're like, oh, great, he didn't get ate by a killer whale or a shark, let's all go swimming. Yeah. So the first little kid that comes over with trepidation, as soon as they see me playing and you know being silly and taking photos and making silly faces and letting the kid grab my nose or something ridiculous, then all the other little kids, all the little penguins go, oh, it's safe to go swimming, and they all come flocking over to the to the table. So it's all just a silly ecosystem of shenanigans that we have to sort of it's, put up. In. It's funny that you have to like actually plan out, like, I don't want to go be too scary and not sell a t-shirt, you know? Yeah, I mean, as a bad guy, I don't go out a whole heck of a lot, but when I do... I figure like a lot of the old school mentality is like, if you're a bad guy, don't sell merch. I think, well, you know, I want to feed my family. I want to pay my bills. Yeah. So I'm going to go out there. I'm just going to be clever about it thinking, you know, every bad guy is is a hero justified. Right. You know, even if they're deluded. You know, Darth Vader thought he was doing the universe a favor by, he just wanted to bring order to the galaxy. Even if it meant blowing up planets here and there, you know, he was deluded. But his weird ideology was weirdly altruistic. Right. So I think like 
if I go out there, I'm the hero of my own narrative. And if I'm the bad guy, if kids are coming up wanting to take a photo or buy merch, then my mind's eye has to arrive at these kids have great taste. I'm the greatest wrestler in the galaxy. And these kids obviously know it. So, of course, I will allow them the privilege of my company, <laughs> you know. And then as soon as the kids are like, oh, I like the other guy better, mister. Then I ham it up and go, oh, well, you're lucky that your big tough dad is here or I'd get you, you know, and which kind of makes the dad look like the hero and the kid kind of hides behind the dad and the dad's kind of giggling and he know he's going to go home looking like the hero. And yeah. so, you know, in a roundabout way, we're doing some weird kind of like parental uh, assist, you know, like we're kind of putting ketchup on the parent's burger kind of a thing. Right, like right. dad look cooler than he was before he walked up to the table, that kind of a stuff. So I think like uh, a weird, maybe this is a hippie-ish take on things, but I think wrestling or just like when you're watching a horror movie. You know, you want to see these bad guys do all sorts of awful stuff, but you also want to see good for them. Yeah. You want to see happily ever after, you know? And so I think we, it's our job, it's our privilege, it's our due diligence to do that. If we go out there not understanding the the story tools we are wielding, then we are telling the wrong stories. So when you got into the business, was kayfabe a thing was the fact it was a bigger thing it was, was for sure bigger so, than it, so it's not existing for now. the people that don't know is basically uh a lot of people run around talking about how wrestling is a uh, an act or it's a fixed fight and and these characters are are pretending uh there was a time where that wasn't the case where we we they were performing uh a very male melodrama but they were not letting the public in on the right. fact that it was such right. a thing. And I remember in the mid nineties was about the time. I mean, I'd, yeah, I always sort of start unraveling. I mean, there was, yeah. there was always notions for the longest time before that, but it was just rumors or just I mean, innuendos. When you've, when a uh, uh, hacksaw mm-hmm. Jim Duggan and the Sheik got right. caught driving together, that was a big deal. Like uh, it was, it was one of those things where it's like, they can't drive together. They're mortal enemies, you know? So when you started, was was that something that you guys were protecting still? Or was it already kind of a known... Uh, it was tongue-in-cheek to say it, but it was a no-no for wrestlers to say it. And right. it was definitely taken as an insult if fans would come up and say that to a wrestler. Right. Uh, and my original trainer, Rod Hutchinson, I mean, he was very protective of the business, like... Our first day of wrestling class was like, so it's not different. It's different than it is now. This is exactly what I'm trying to get to. Your first day of wrestling class. So, okay. So my first day of wrestling class, my just my very first day, my feet wet day was harder than my first black belt rating. That's how hard right. ran us to see who had the mm-hmm. stones in the heart to stay or to be accepted into this business that was his business as far as he was concerned. And he was to protect it. He was only going to bring in the people that had the best heart that could, you know, stay the stay the course and, and, and do all that jazz. And I remember him saying, uh, nobody gets a water break until somebody pukes and nobody, and the class is not done until somebody quits and says, I'm never coming back. Right. And it was his mission to make both of those things happen. Yeah. So those people would go out into the world and say, holy crap, this, this is the hardest is hard. thing in the world. Yeah. So I want to say it was about three and a half hours in, somebody finally puked. I'm, I'm amazed it took that long because uh, he beat our asses from minute one. Yeah. And then uh, about four and a half hours later, this one dude, I'll never forget this big Italian looking, big, scary looking dude was like, all right, I quit. I'm never coming back. And he 
And <laughs> that was bounced. it. And that was the end of classes about four and a half hours. And like I said, like that class was harder than my first black belt rating, which was no picnic, by the way. So when we were, uh, when we were in Snake Pit, I would hear these stories of how that was, mm-hmm. and D'Lo had his stories sure. of his training. Jake, let alone. Oh God man, Jake, Jake yeah. Gangrel. When Gangrel came to to do a guest class, it was the greatest talk I ever heard because he went in to wrestling class believing sure. that it was real, and sure. he didn't understand sure. when they wanted him to lose a fight. Mm-hmm. He he didn't want to lose any fights. He wanted to make money. Mm-hmm. His stories were incredible, but then I hear all this, and not that our word of wrestling class wasn't hard it was the hardest thing that i had endured physically and i'm old and out of shape gee i thought we were taking it really easy on you guys that i <laughs> but but that's kind of the thing in a sense compared to the old days you totally were taking it easy on us. well it's today's a different landscape like again back in the day you put all of your money down in one shot right and then they just tried to break you because they got your money they got so your if money they break you that's just one less person they have to worry about. And it's one more human sandwich board that's going to go into the world and advertise how hard wrestling is. Right. Where nowadays it's a much more back and forth trusting landscape where, you know, somebody wants to come and learn. They pay monthly, like almost like a gym membership. It really was. Yeah. We trust them to uh, pay their dues monthly and they trust us to give them knowledge. monthly. Yeah. So it's, it's do you think amicable, it reflects, amicable. do you think it reflects that the, the um, mainstream wrestling has become a little bit more, uh, I, I guess PG is what some people call it, but family friendly or less brutal. It was it was family friendly even in, in the eighties. If, if anything, it was oh a little yeah, bit more cartoony. Yeah, yeah. You know, there were the rock and wrestling kids. days yeah. and stuff like that. And I think so. Let's look at it like the eighties wrestling. You know, think of that like the Super Friends cartoon, right? You know, it was all like goody goody characters and capes and undies uh, fighting justice, but they were all interchangeably good guys. Yeah. You know, you could take all those good guys and they were, you know, drastically different characters, but they were all either really good or really bad. Right. Now you take those same super friend characters, fast forward to now, or those movies, like the DC movies or Marvel yeah, movies or whatever. Dark. Yeah, there, there's so many different, you know, layers to these characters, you know. Flash is quirky. Aquaman is like the party guy. Bruce Wayne is a stoic, brooding dude. You know, Superman is the Boy Scout. Uh, Wonder Woman is pretty much like this G.I. Jane, like no nonsense, you know, alpha female, you know, kind of a thing. Like there's all these different layers of these characters and they're flawed. They have like things where, you know, different characters have this problem or that problem or whatever, where you never saw that in an 80s cartoon where you just didn't. It's the same characters, but just for... And, and that's kind of like audience. kind of like wrestling when you look at yeah. Dean Ambrose or yeah, even, Dan- more even Daniel Bryan and, and stuff like that. Yeah, you know? more mature social issues, more mature landscape, you know, ever evolving landscape and all that jazz. Like I think if somebody came screaming along with face paint on, saying they're from parts unknown, nowadays people go, oh, yeah, yeah. Whereas in the eighties, we're like, this is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Ultimate Warrior shaking their ups. This is tremendous. You know, where I think people could appreciate his athleticism. These days, or like you know his physique or how hard he worked on all that stuff or whatever but wrestling is so much more now yeah I think I think there's in any era you're gonna find the pros and the cons like it would be easy for me to bash this era and put over that era yeah or vice versa or whatever but I'm I'm not old school per se and I'm not new school per se I'm the bridge I kind of I'm Jeet Kune Do I like all of it I think right. be water be fluid and morph and mold with the times take the best of old school take the best of new school and and so forth. and it applies the same movies 
you know, watching, you know, whether it's a horror movie or a comedy or a cartoon or whatever, yeah. like, there's, there's always going to be things that work. And then there's stuff that is going to get outdated and stuff that might seem hokey or serious or just, I mean, taking things out of context, like, you know, the, was it the baby is cold outside? Like it was not meant how a lot of people want to, you know, put heat on it these days. It just wasn't meant like that in the time. We're in a sensitive uh, generation Super right now. Super sensitive. Which is why I wonder if, if wrestling schools and martial arts schools in general have taken it a little easier on on their students late as of this generation that might, so. might just be crybabies if they push them hard. Well, you know? I mean, I, I enjoy when you guys pushed us so hard that I'm not going to mention names, but some people would be like, whining or crying sure. or wanting to go home or sure. you well, know the coaches can kind of see that but i love game. that i love I, i'm like we're at wrestling camp boys we need to get pushed that hard we should be puking you know that's that's part <laughs> of it i did i puked uh you know again it's just like i kind of would joke with some of the guys like i feel like not mama bear not papa bear i feel just right i gotta walk in and not push too hard but not Hey, you were that much. guy. Like, you were that guy because I'll tell you, D'Lo beat the hell out of us, I'm sure. and uh, and Jake verbally was able to. Yes. Uh, well, Jake would get into your skull. Yeah, yes, that's Jake's. He's the cerebral assassin. Sure he is, of course. And uh, of course. and it was awesome though to get assassinated by Jake the Snake Roberts was a, an incredible honor. For for absolutely, I mean, like I learned more from Jake early on in my career, just kind of listening to him. Like I remember sitting in on his couch in Fort Lauderdale when I really first started riding with him and we're sitting there and he popped in a few matches of him and Steamboat, him and DiBiase, him and Rude. And he would play fast forward pause and be like, brother, this is what I was thinking here. Brother, this is why I did this. And brother, 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 brother. And I'm like, holy crap, this is genius next level stuff. And of course it's next level stuff. Yeah. From like one of the most cerebral guys in wrestling history. So you take all that stuff in, just like you take in all of your life adventures, just like I'm sure we can parallel you learning from so much, this yeah. master of it this. It parallels this so much that. that it's it's crazy to me. Sure. And you find all your neat little tricks yeah. and these neat little nuances, and then you trip over your own things, and then you blend them with the things that you've learned, and then you create original things, and yeah. then the stuff that you do, beg, borrow, twist, mold, bits and pieces, and you smash, collage. It is. You told me way. one time, once you understand... Uh, once you understand what's a work, you can go through every day and look at all the elements of the day sure. as as what's going on as a work, you know. Sure, and yeah. it's true. And I and well, I the wrestlers do. have a saying that that wrestling is real life is a work. So, yeah, it, you know. it, it's crazy. So it, for for the listeners, a work is wrestling jargon for a fix. Yeah. So and and it's uh you know you you get or cut an illusion, off an illusion. you get cut off by that guy but you end up turning right and then all of a sudden the the deal you needs on the side of the road totally it all works out absolutely but uh but yeah uh i definitely uh saw the parallels of your world with my world like when For you sure. say oh i pulled this from so and so and this from so and so that's me pulling from john Beekler or gabe bartolos totally and then adding a little tom devlinism to it and boom we have an iconic character. Absolutely. And, uh, and that, I, one of the things that I love about wrestling is the iconic characters, the mankinds. I like it, modern days. I was a big fan of the Wyatt family and Bray Wyatt. Uh, and then specifically, uh, I loved when Daniel Bryan, who's a goody goody, became part of that right. and then went off on his own and he was kicking. I love Daniel Bryan because he was my size. He's five, six, uh, not like a super, you don't look at that guy and think that guy's a badass wrestler. But he is a badass wrestler. And, he's an awesome wrestler. And, uh, and he's so clever at being a storyteller and 
wielding all the, you know, the good versus evil. Like, I mean, he became the most loved. Then he became the most hated. Yeah. And now he's he the goes most loved again. You know, so he is awesomely awesome at controlling his narrative. Yeah. You know, he is definitely, uh, you know, a master storyteller. And, you know, he's his wrestling skills, you know, may fall on the technical, but he is a storytelling master utilizing his strengths where so, other characters rely on, um, you know, I, I missed the parallels to the horror stuff. Like, you know, the visual parlayed with a good story makes for a fun view. I feel that you are so intelligent when it comes to that storytelling. Oh, so intelligent when it comes to understanding the craft, you had a shot, like a pretty decent shot in the big leagues. You were on national television. You did a ton of dark matches uh, you knew people in the in the biz, but you didn't use them to get there. No. Uh, tell us a little bit about Kazarni and the Jim Rose Circus right. and just the the character because you were a horror uh, kind of crazy Looney Tunes character mm-hmm. that maybe ten years too early. Like they just perhaps the WWE couldn't get around, you know. This uh, eating fire and stuff at at that level then. Well, so when we filmed all the Kazarni vignettes, Vince's sort of mandate was go to this carnival, film whatever did the heck you Did he pick can. Kizarni or did you pick Kazarni? That was that was Vince's idea. And were you already a carny at that point? I totally did all the stuff. Uh he just sort of repackaged the name from Simbodi to Kazarni. So I chose to look like I that's how I felt like looking. They didn't give me any grief about looking the way I looked. Right. Uh, they knew I was a legit circus guy. And and I always would say uh, circus or sideshow or freak show. I never used the word carnival. Carnival. And when I went and had my meeting with Because it's like the go-bots of the, Well, I just, I just, I don't know. I just, for some reason, I just didn't, never really kind of looked at it like that. And then when I went in to have my sit down with Vince, I did use that word because I knew wrestling came from the carnival, the carnival. all that yeah. stuff. And I knew that. You know, I wasn't sure, but Vince's I had a few dad people, started in the carnivals. Yeah, I had a few people tell me that Vince liked the carnival stuff, so I thought, okay, well, I can sort of use vernacular that will maybe endear this idea to him a little bit more, tether it to him a little bit more. So I used the word carnival. So his eyes kind of light up, and we're talking, and we had a really great conversation. And the next day at the uh, right at ringside, we're standing there, and he came over and kind of told me this was going to be my name. And he said, it's Carney for Carney. You get it? And I was like, I sure do. I get it. You know, <laughs> I was so enamored to do everything right. Like I was never intimidated. I was just enamored, maybe too enamored for my own good, where maybe I should have piped up a little bit more, but I, I was always taught like be a good soldier, do what the promoter wants, whether I like it or not. And I was fully, fully happy and enthused to do it. So even if I wasn't a big fan of the name, I wanted to impress Vince McMahon. I wanted to impress all the fans yeah. at WWE. I wanted to live my dreams and do my thing. And so if that was what I was, if I was going to follow my dreams with that name, so be it. I was not going to piss on it or be negative about it. I was just going to make it the best I can, even if I wasn't the biggest fan of it. And again, woulda, shoulda, coulda. I'm a big boy. I'll make my bed and sleep in it. Uh, if I could go back in time, but seeing as I don't have access to a time not machine, I, you know, it's a moot point. Not yet. They're coming. But I mean, I woulda, shoulda, coulda. I would have you know, humbly, as politely as possible, say, Vince, I'm so happy for this opportunity. What do you think about this idea or this name or whatever? And then if he said, 
yep, I would have said, great. And if he said, nope, well, he's the boss and he signed the checks. And I would have said, okay, I gave you a different suggestion. You didn't like it. I'll do it your way. Yeah. But I didn't do that. I just immediately jumped to, yes, sir. And, you know, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not... Uh, just I'm I, maybe I'm even weirdly masochistically proud of that. Like I was taught to be a good soldier. I mean, I'm, you should be proud because you may not have had a four year run. I don't know how long your run was, but it was it was notable. I mean, it, you you were a character, and we remember. You know, well, you know, a lot of people do. Being that character, like you know, people can can crack on that character, and they can whatever. But I mean. For the little time that I had on, if people still remember that character, I must have done something right. Yeah. I mean, you weren't the, uh, what was the glitter stormtrooper helmet guy? Shock, uh, Shockmaster. <laughs> Shockmaster. You weren't Shockmaster. Well, and power to him. He, I'm sure they probably walked up to Tugboat and said, hey, man, we want you to wear this costume. We want you to be the Shockmaster. And whether he liked it or not, he said, yep. he played ball, yep. you know, so I can't fault him for, for that. And I mean. So when you, when you left. WWE mm-hmm. is that when you joined the Jim Rose Circus? So okay, so I remember John Laronitis saying, "Why don't you go to Puerto Rico and, and uh, you know you can get some some exposure and some more experience down there?" I said, "Okay." So the first, so literally, I want to say, I, maybe I, I got my release on a Tuesday. I was in Puerto Rico wrestling for Carlos Colon on on that following Friday because I wasn't going to wait. And but weirdly, I have no idea. You know, whether Jim Rose is psychic or what, but literally that same night that I got released, I get a call from Jim Rose saying, hey, man, I like your circus stuff. If you're not with WWE, uh, you need to come to Vegas and make some money with me. And so sure enough, in a roundabout way, we ended up doing that. And that that's Jim Rose is definitely the reason why I did migrate to Las Vegas. So thank you, Jim, for that. Um but yeah, that's kind of how that went. I just wasn't going to stop. I hit the ground running and I wasn't going to, you know, go, oh, what was me? I was going to parlay what I knew, parlay my character into new adventures and look forward. Were you were you with the Jim Rose Circus when they were opening for Nine Inch Nails and on Lollapalooza no, that or was any before, of that? No, I would have been. That, that was pretty far that was back. Pretty, yeah. Yeah. That was way before. That's I, when I, I, I gained knowledge of them and I didn't ever get to go. But I remember yeah. thinking, that's, that's awesome. I'm, you know, I'm up there, but I'm not that far up yeah. there. I want to say I was probably a teeny bopper in high school when he was doing things with uh, Marilyn Manson. Okay. And Nine Inch Nails and all that jazz. Okay. But uh, working with Jim was interesting, to say the least. You know, he was a good dude, and we could get on each other's nerves, and we could bicker and argue or whatever. But, you know, I think we both respected each other, and we both knew that we both brought things to the table. And I think I frustrated Jim because as much as I loved wrestling and circus and all that different stuff... I think I wasn't how a lot of, not no disrespect to any other performers, but so many other side show performers were so enamored by Jim Rose because that was their pinnacle of aspiration. Right. Uh, That's where they wanted to be. Yeah. They wanted to be the next Jim Rose. So, yeah. so they were sort of starstruck where I didn't look at it like that. I was respectful of Jim and respectful of what he did. Yeah. But I just, I looked at him as like another promoter, another, uh, producer and what have you. So if I liked something, I liked it. If I didn't like it, I piped up. And I think it bugged him that I wasn't like up his A fanboy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I got along with him and I, I think we, we had a lot of fun together. We did some pretty cool business together. Um, when it comes to after that, 
How I want to say the biggest crowd I ever worked for was not a wrestling crowd. It was for Jim Rose Circus. Me as a wrestling right. strongman for Jim Rose Circus in at Sturgis in front of I want to say about a hundred thousand. That's people. awesome. That was I mean that kind of that kind of human interaction is when they you know cheered and made noises. You could feel their the voices. repercussion. Like yeah. you could feel it on your skin. Not just I, mean, I don't mean just spiritually. I mean yeah, physically, physically. You can feel a, th- a hundred thousand voices. That's awesome. on your skin. What what was the timeline between the Jim Rose Circus and Freak Show Wrestling? And for those of you who don't know, with Freak Show Wrestling, it's not just a wrestling show. It is really like the trauma, or it is it is a crazy punk rock pop art, uh, bonkers balls to the wall horror magic extravaganza of wrestling. There yes. are girls putting drills through their noses. There are guys with clans of demons. Coming out and I mean it is it really is uh, funny, sexy, scary, creepy. Yeah, with with badass music most of the time attached to it. Totally. You know. Um, so what was the was it being involved with the Jim Rose Circus to kind of let you create this freak show of a freak show wrestling? Uh, no, but Jim Rose was definitely an influence. Uh, so again, before I was Kazarmi, I want to say since maybe about two thousand and three is when I. I first started doing the circus stuff with Carnival Diablo in, in Toronto. Okay. So that's so Scott McClellan, Nikolai Diablo is where I, he's the guy that really taught me my foundation of being a circus strongman and, and you know, all that kind of crazy stuff. Uh, but as far as like freak show wrestling, so the, the roundabout way that came up was when I got my release, I was frustrated, you know, I was frustrated with the PG dynamic at WWE at the time. And I started doing this thing called the Dynamite Death Monkeys, which was a stage show that in, involved, you know, a lot of sideshow acts and bits. That it's really do. almost like thumbing through the pages of Bizarre Magazine. Sort of. Like yeah. I, I, had, uh, I had Titan, who was a seven-foot wrestler, who was a developmental release. I had a, a guy named Sean Osborne, Bad Seed, Blind Seed, Rest His Soul. Uh, he was another developmental release. And then I had a guy named Tweedle Die who was this 450 pound, like indie guy. Yeah, he was sort of the, the Jason Newstead to our Metallica. Like yeah, we were yeah. all experienced guys, he was this young dude. And so I kind of showed them very phonetically what I needed from them on stage. We parlayed that with their wrestling experience and the wrestling characters. And we created a really fun sort of a sideshow stage show that was like, and we did this in Tampa in Ybor City, which was a, a very prominent death metal market. So yeah. we really, morphed our show to fit that dynamic so we were doing some really like almost gg allen-esque stuff mixed with like if you took gg allen and three stooges and smushed us together like i was doing sideshow stuff and then we'd close it out with this big sort of itchy and scratchy tom and jerry very bizarre funny scary hardcore fight at the end of it and when promoters would book us for their concerts or whatever like we opened for like cannibal corpse and seven dust and all these different things and obituary and all these different crazy bands and I would have to explain to bands like, or uh, explain to concert promoters that think of us like another band, book us like a band, give us a setup time, give us a set time and give us a teardown time. We're just not playing instruments, we're playing weapons. Right. And that always seemed to explain it to them. So then they're like, oh, okay, well, this is all right, cool. And we were this weird, bizarre uh, Floridian attraction. And then uh, eventually, and we did that also too, so we didn't have to have a ring. We could do it on stage. It was just a lot more portable and easier to deal with. 
And then as the show got bigger, then we got a ring and we started just doing a whole event where we weren't just a set on a rock concert with three, four, ten other bands. Now we were just doing a, a, an enclosed evening. And that's when we got the ring. And then that soon turned into Freak Show Wrestling. And we took that from Florida to Las Vegas. And, and that was Freak Show Wrestling. That's awesome. Have you ever in your career uh, had anything to do with the Juggalo Wrestling Federation? Or anything to do with ICP in general? Uh, I met ICP way back when I was first doing stuff uh, with TNA in Nashville. And they were coming in on the regular. And so I knew them from there briefly. And weirdly, with us having such parallel characters, I never did any of the gatherings. Right? We talked about it a few times. And just between scheduling and this and that, it just never panned out. And then I did one show... Uh, for them in Las Vegas at the venue where we did Freak Show Wrestling. Oh, okay. It was sort of like a tandem thing. It was it was totally a an ICP thing. Like it was a Juggalo Wrestling Federation. Yeah, it wasn't a, like it wasn't like a joint production. It was right. just in the same venue and and they were like, "Hey man, you're the guy that does the show here. We think it'd be cool for you to be part of this deal." That's cool. And so, I've always, I've got massive respect for those guys because they're huge horror fans. They're huge sure. into the industry. Totally. Uh, they make their own movies and stuff. I've actually been killed by Shaggy Two Dope in a film. Uh, <laughs> of course, <yeah>. but <laughs> I've never got to go to a, a Juggalo wrestling event, and right. I they're such huge wrestling fans. Sure. Those guys kind of like. Like me, I think they just they love it all, and uh, and and I totally respect them for for what they do. It was a great show. It was a fun fun show. I wrestled uh, Chewy Martinez, who was one of their mainstay one of their guys. guys, and we went through a carnival death match. That's which awesome. Was pretty fun. I enjoyed watching him like almost puking. He couldn't like his wind couldn't keep with my wind that's awesome and he was a super cool dude he was a great dude i like him a lot yeah and my wife was at ringside with me sort of you know helping me with some of the props and shenanigans and, and stuff and it was just it was it was a lot of fun it was fun and it was it amused me to hear him say i can't breathe just hold on can we just like just shut up let's just go and just, <laughs> just, you know, just mess with each other like yeah. you know wrestlers like to do yeah and yeah it was a good time and it was a fun time it was cool that's awesome well, I'm going to wrap this one up, but I will tell you, uh, Sin Bodhi, do you have anything? What's going on now that you want to plug anything that's going on? Okay, so we've got our wrestling school uh, in Las Vegas here, the FSW Snake Pit Pro Wrestling Academy. Uh, FSW, Future Stars of Wrestling, is the show. Snake Pit is the school, and we are smashed into one awesome facility uh, really close to the airport. February 5th, we are going to have a wrestling seminar with uh, Hall of Famers, Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And the following night, February 6th, we are going to have a show for just any and all humans that want to come and check it out. It'll be like kind of like a road show, uh, road stories, Q&A. Uh, it'll be a really, really cool time. And that's uh, you can find that on Facebook uh, at... Uh, Future Stars of Pro Wrestling and the Snake Pit Pro Wrestling Academy. And for me, Sin Bodhi, you can find all of my shenanigans where I'm going to wrestle, where I'm teaching, where I'm doing seminars, where I'm doing shows at, uh, at Sin Bodhi, S-I-N-N-B-O-D-H-I. And that's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's all the same. I'm Tom Devlin. This is Sin Bodhi. And the nighttime is the fright time. This is Midnight at the Monster Museum. We'll talk to you next week.